What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. As technology has advanced, it means that our modern age is losing many different types of arts. Things of the past are becoming quickly obsolete. And one of those things is driving a manual transmission. In fact, one article speaks about how in Europe today, in fact, 80% of cars sold have manual transmissions. But in the United States, only 1%. Isn't that interesting? I found this article, another article that said, only around 18% of American drivers can handle a manual transmission, according to U.S. News and World Report. Just curious, by a show of hands, how many of you right now, not in the past, but right this very moment, own a manual transmission vehicle? All right. Just, just a handful of us. All right. At a show of hands, how many of you know how to drive one or can drive one? All right. We obviously do not meet the criteria of this, but if we were into a large city, most likely many of them would not. But I found another article that, that gave us a, a fourfold step on how we can learn how to drive a manual transmission or a stick shift. And it is number one, familiarize yourself with the clutch. Number two, familiarize yourself with a gear shifter. Number three, start the car. (laughs) Number four, get the car moving from a stop. Wow, how vague those definitions and instructions are. Obviously, maybe you've tried to learn how to drive a stick shift and you failed miserably. I mean, we've all been there. The first time, I think I was like 16 years old when I was trying to drive my father's green F-150. And every truck, every car that's a manual transmission, every clutch is different. You know that now. We do. And so this, this truck, I'm telling you, this was not the starting vehicle to learn on. Just a preface of this, okay? Because that clutch did not grab very easily. It was a very specific spot in there that you had to get it. So I get the car going, but then it started jarring on me and shaking on me. And then we get to the driveway uh, where my parents live in Boone's Mill. And, and if you've ever driven past it, you know it's a little hill. Well, I, I could not get the truck up the hill. Couldn't. Couldn't. Tried time after time. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. But you know, if you have ever tried or learned how or somebody tried to explain it to you, in order to drive, or to drive that manual transmission, you, as you push the gas pedal down, you ease off the clutch. Sounds simple. But it's not always as easy as it is. Now, I shared that with you to let you know that somebody could give you a written instruction manual on how to drive a stick shift, or they can give you an instructional video on how it's done. Like that is done in many areas of our life, I believe the writer of Hebrews is coming to his final conclusion and giving us instructions on how to live out the Christian life. So far in the book of Hebrews, he's had five major warning passages. And after and before this warning passage, he kind of went on these different ideas about the Christian life. And now he's coming to the, the concluding words here on how to live the Christian life. 
So the title of my sermon is simply, The Basic Instructions for the Christian Life. Now, the Bible is, in a sense, an instructional manual for us how to live out the Christian life. But from this particular passage, we are going to discover how exactly to do that. And that leads me to the question today. How or what are the basic instructions for the Christian life from Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 1 through 6? That's the key question today. What are the basic instructions for the Christian life from this passage? I'm glad you're asking that question because I asked it too. There's so many passages we could go to about how to practically live out the Christian life. We could go to the Beatitudes and hear Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We could go to other areas that Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12 and look at that applicational passage after all the doctrine. But, but today, we're looking at this particular text. We're going to see that, that really what it summarizes is, is, is our role in community is to be full of love. Our role in a family, it's to be full of love. And our role in our own mind should be loving God above all things. Love is at the forefront of the mind of the writer here from verses 1 through 6. And if I could summarize this section with a, with a, a thought, here's the key message today. The Christian life is a call to displaying love, honoring marriage, and being content. We literally could summarize it all with one word, and that is love. Would you say love with me? Love. Say it again. Love. Now say Philadelphia. Philadelphia. I know it doesn't make any sense to you, but the Greek word in our text is literally Philadelphia. So you just learned a Greek word today. It is a noun right here. It is brotherly love. This gives the idea of love that is... uh, an expression that you would give to your brother or sister or in your household. And so we as a church, we are considered a family of believers, a community of believers, and we are to display this Philadelphia brotherly love to one another. And so when we understand that we are to love, that means that we're going to love people in our community. Strangers, family members, church members. We are going to love our spouse if you are married. We are going to love our Savior, Jesus Christ, and not allow anything to get into our mind that would bring our affections to something else. So this passage is all about love. It is about how we as Christians are called to display love how we are called to honor marriage, and we are called to be content. Would you look at verses 1, 2, and 3 specifically today? As we come to this first section of these six verses, I want to share this first of three thoughts with you. What are the basic instructions for the Christian life from this text? Well, number one, display love continually. The very first verse, it says, you might be thinking, well, I'm not very good at memorizing Bible verses. Well, here's one, two, three words for you. Let brotherly love continue. Or in other words, display love. Love others and do it always. 
He says, let brotherly love. Notice how in our English Bible, there are four words here, but for brotherly love in the original text, it is literally one word, Philadelphia. And it gives the idea of love that is given towards a brother or member of your household and family. And so now we see that Paul, or I think it is Paul here, maybe it's not, but the writer of Hebrews is utilizing this Philadelphia Greek word to emphasize how we are to be demonstrated this brotherly love in our community of faith and beyond. And he says, continue. This word comes from a Greek word, meno. And it literally means to abide, to remain, to continue. So the idea here that the writer is conveying for you and me right now, just like these believers in the first century, is that God wants us to have this Philadelphia brotherly love And we are to have it every single day, every single week, every single month, every single year for the rest of our lives since we are Christians. Now that's hard sometimes. But I believe verse number two is letting us in on how we can actually apply that to our life. So display love continually. Well, how, what does that look like? Well, in verses one and two, we see this idea of hospitality. Display love continually through hospitality. Now here in our text, it speaks about entertaining strangers. It it speaks about, that does not mean you get your guitar out or you get your harp out or you get your harmonica out and you entertain them with music or watch a movie or something. It means that you open up your home and you invite them in and you host them in your house. Now in the ancient world, they traveled a little bit differently than we do. Uh, today, today we have ho- hotels or motels or Airbnbs or VRBOs. We have all these different things today. But in the ancient world, they had these inns and they were essentially brothels. And if you don't know what that was, they were houses of, of, of people who would sell their bodies for money. Prostitution hall, in a sense. And so the Christian community would be highly offended if they were to get a room and there's a lady in there or a man in there expecting a little more than just a handshake. And the idea was that when they would travel around, they didn't want to go into those places. And then to top it all off, those places were pricey, expensive. The average person in the ancient world was not wealthy, didn't have the means to pay for those things. So what the church would do is when there would be traveling people in the community of faith, when they heard about this person who was a brother or sister in the Christian faith, they would house them and they would bring them in. They would host them. They would give them a bed. They would give them a place to shower and get cleaned up. They would give them food to eat and then they would send them on their way. They would bid them Godspeed. And that's what bidding somebody Godspeed means, that you host them into your house and you're aiding them in their efforts. When you see that passage in other places, it does not mean that you can't take an unbeliever out to eat and try to coerce them into believing the gospel. It means you should not host a Mormon or somebody of another faith like Jehovah's Witnesses that has false doctrine that is deterring from Orthodox Christianity or a Muslim or a Buddhist and you're to aid them into their efforts and act like what they believe is Orthodox and true. Here the Bible says that in addition to all this, the writer is bringing into the memory banks of his listeners the idea of Genesis chapter 18 and Genesis chapter 19. He says, don't forget guys, there were people in our heritage of faith in our Jewish community many years ago who entertained and brought people in and they were actually angelic beings unaware. So hospitality is what we're called to. 
Now, in our culture today, I know that, that we're a little private. We may not want people to stay in our house. So we can actually provide somebody a lodging place through Airbnb or through a hotel like Sleep In or the Marriott, I don't know, or the Hotel Roanoke, who knows? We can pay for them a place to stay. We can give them a meal. We can aid them in that way. Although sometimes it is a very good thing to bring them into our home. Now, I am literally preaching to the choir here because our church is, is very gifted in this hospitality area. Let's just imagine you're on a missions team. You go to some other church and most churches are not going to be as hospitable as we are in many different areas. So I hear. But the goal here is not to read verse 2 of chapter 13 and say, I'm going to host everybody that I can find in hopes that I'm going to host an angelic being. The reality is, is I can only think of four instances in the Old Testament. Two in Genesis. You have Abraham and Sarah. You have Lot. You have Gideon. And you have um, Manoah. I think that's how you pronounce the name. In Judges. So two in Genesis, two in Judges. That's only four times in Scripture that I can see in the Old Testament, at least, where there are people who are hosting these angels unaware in their home. The goal here is he's citing these opportunities in the past to remind us that just as those people hosted these angelic beings without them realizing they were angelic beings, we are called to host these people. Now notice here, the Bible says they've entertained angels. Say angels with me. Angels. It comes from the Greek word angelos. And that can mean an angel like we think of, and it can mean a messenger. So we are called to host the messengers of God. And if you're a Christian and you're carrying the Bible and you're telling people about Jesus, you are a messenger from God. So we are to aid them and help them in these efforts through hospitality. That's how we can show love. Another way we can do that is found in verse number three. The first part here, it speaks about this idea of remembering people who are incarcerated. Generosity. We have hospitality, check generosity. Let's see if we got that and check that off. It says, remember them that are in bonds as bound with them. Check it out now. He's saying, let's remember the people that have been incarcerated or thrown in jail because of their faith in Christ as if we are sitting in the jail with them. Now, let me just, let me just ask us all a sobering question. When is the last time any of us have ever written somebody a letter who is in jail. Or actually, you know, you can make phone calls today. I don't know if you ever heard of a cellular device. You can make phone calls there. And you can, I don't know if you ever heard of, a, of this thing called an email. You can email people inside jails. And then let me ask you this. When is the last time you've ever visited somebody who was in jail? Now, maybe they were there because of their own foolishness and foolish decisions. Or maybe they were there because they were falsely accused. Or maybe they were there because man, they're guilty. Whatever the case may be, what, maybe they're there because they're Christians and somebody figured out a way to throw them in jail. Well, that's what's taking place in verse three. The context in the book of Hebrews is that there've been people who are going around sharing the gospel and the people in their culture in the Roman world did not like it. So they're throwing these Christians in jail because they are going against the throne of Caesar and going against the pagan religious beliefs of their day. In fact, the real atheists are Christians. The Christian atheists of the ancient world were people who were not polytheistic. They did not believe in many gods. So these ancient people in the first century, they called Christians atheists. So yeah, I am a Christian atheist. 
Just kidding. <laughs> but nonetheless, the idea is, is that we believe in exclusively one God and they believed in many. So they said, you don't believe in our gods, you're an atheist. And they were thrown in jail. Generosity says, I'm going to send somebody who's incarcerated specifically because of their faith. And then specifically because somebody has erred and lost their way, we need to help them. I'm going to send them a gift. I'm going to send them a letter. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to make a visit. I'm not saying you need to do that every week. I'm not saying you need to do it every month. I'm not even saying you got to do that every year. But the idea is, the reality is, is probably most of us have never, ever done it. And God is calling us to do that here. Generosity. Hospitality. But then check it out now. The last half of verse three speaks about sympathy. So we can display love continually through generosity and through hospitality, but now also through sympathy. Here it says, and remember them also who are suffering adversity and being yourselves also as being yourselves also in the body. So in other words, he's saying, remember those who are in jail as if you're sitting in the cell with them. Now remember those who are going through trials as if you're going through the trial with them. That is literally sympathy. So when somebody's going through grief, when they suffered adversity, we need to act and we need to treat them as if we are going through it and desiring them to treat us. And I think that we as a church do that exceptionally well. There's always room for improvement of sh for sure, but in any type of adversity, this could mean somebody's in the hospital, so we, we need to go visit people. We do. I mean, let me, let me just think about it. Or a nursing home or somebody who's shut in. When is the last time you went and visited somebody that was in the hospital or somebody who was in a nursing home or somebody who was shut in? They could not get out. You know, a lot of times people ask me how they're doing. And sometimes I want to just say, well, why won't you call them yourself and ask them? So the idea here is this is not my responsibility in of itself. This is our Christian community's responsibility to check on each other and help each other when we're down, to sympathize and empathize with others. So let me ask you something. Are you displaying this brotherly type of love as mentioned in this text? Display love continually. God's instructional manual for us in the Christian life is to love. But then check it out now. As we transition secondly to what else are we being instructed about this Christian life from Hebrews chapter 13? Well, first of all, we saw in verses one through three, display love continually. But now secondly, from verse number four, honor marriage biblically. Did you hear me? Honor marriage biblically. We're going to get into some things here. This is in our culture today. The things that I'm about to share with you, it's not easy. And at some point along the way, we have been hit by the darts, whether it's through our mental thoughts, whether it's through the words we've said, or it's through the actions what we've done. We, when we read verse number four, we are going to consider the idea that we are all guilty and underneath the judgment of God apart from Jesus Christ and him saving us. But that being said, let's consider this. Marriage. Would you say that with me? Marriage. Well, in our world, we have to define what marriage is. Did you know the very first institution, if you want to call it that, that was ever created was not the government, was not a school. It was marriage and Genesis. 
going back to the first couple chapters of Genesis, you can read it for yourself. The very first organization, business, whatever you want to call it, or institution, as I prefer, is marriage. You say, why would you call marriage a business? Because some people it is a business. Go back in the ancient world, they would marry people of another country, kings would, so they gained territory and influence over that region. And so we see that marriage, as defined in scripture, going back to Genesis, you have Adam and Eve. Then you go to the words of Jesus. I'm not making this up. This is the words of Jesus. He said, God made them in the beginning, male and female. So listen, my opinion about marriage is irrelevant to what God's word says about marriage. Does it make sense? It doesn't matter what, what any political party of America is saying about marriage. What, what, what matters is if God created mankind and established marriage, what matters is what God says about marriage. And so marriage, as defined in scripture, is between a biological male and a biological female. And preferably for life. Now we're fallen creatures. We, we make mistakes. We do. God is gracious. But, but God has designed marriage to portray his amazing love for us. Ephesians chapter 5 speaks of that. And so here it says marriage is honorable. Marriage is actually a good thing. But in the ancient world, you have to understand that when, when the writer's writing this in the first century, the ancient world viewed marriage as like um, marriage. It's just a contract that we're trying to gain territory. Yeah, I'll go through marriage. I'll get that. They're, they're viewing marriage, especially like um, marriage between one man and one woman as like, oh, wow, I, See, they would marry in the ancient world, but then the men would often have a host of mistresses, especially if they were of great power and stature. Then there would be some religious ones who would look at marriage and, ah, marriage is not, ah, we're going to be celibate. We're going to be single. And so they would over-spiritualize singleness to such a degree that you're not close to God like me because you're, married. Now, let me share this with you. Just as we should not over-spiritualize celibacy, we should not over-symbolize um, or spiritualize marriage itself. I am no more spiritual because I'm single. You are no more spiritual because you are married. I've met, by the way, plenty of Baptists in either categories who are almost like demons running around. Okay, But what I am saying today is whether you're married or you're single, you can run after God and draw close to him. And here the writer says that, hey, these people in the ancient Roman culture didn't honor marriage like God says to honor marriage, but we in the church do. It is an, an institution that God has created that is sanctified. And check it out now. It says that the bid undefiled. This is, a, this is a figure of speech to speak about the sexual relations between a biological man and a biological woman in the union called marriage. Now, I know that sex is a taboo word for a lot of people. 
But nowhere in the Bible does God say sex in of itself is evil. In fact, you go back to the book of Genesis and the idea of being fruitful to multiply and fill the earth or replenish the earth as the King James says, and here the bit undefiled, it gives the idea that sex was created by God for a specific purpose, to be utilized in marriage for procreation. Our world today only views sex as recreational. We say in our culture, and I'm telling you, this stuff has creeped into the church as a whole. We say that sex is something to enjoy and be full of pleasure. So we are going to have the, pop these pills. We are going to utilize all these different items. We're gonna do, have these surgeries so that we can just enjoy the pleasures of recreational sex to the extreme. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to do any of those types of things necessarily. But what I am saying is that if your view of sex is only recreational, you have a wrong view of sex. Sex was created by God to be procreational. The goal of sex is to procreate and establish more human beings in the world. And that's what's literally going on here. And so check this out now. Any, if you're married, and, and here I understand this, this part of the verse is literally revealing to us that God will honor biblical matrimony. That is what we've already defined so far. He honors that. But, but sex outside of the union of marriage is something that God condemns and will judge when it goes unconfessed. Now, I know you might be thinking, is, is this, this should not be the time and place to talk about this. Well, let me just tell you something. The kids are going to learn about this in the school system, whether you like it or not, unless you write an exemption letter for them to be exit out of their classroom. They're going to be learning about this in elementary school, and you better, as a mom or a dad, be checking out what your children are learning and what better place to learn about it than from God's word. And so here it says that the bed is undefiled. However, the opposite of that is true. That when marriage is not honored, then the bed of marriage will be defiled. And that's what we get into in the second part here. It says, but whoremongers. And I know it's not a word we like to use, but this is literally a word for male prostitutes. A man going around and prostituting himself for illicit sex. Or we can word it like this, sexual immorality. This term can be applied to men and women who are abusing God's design of sex. So if a man or a woman sleep together outside of marriage, the Bible actually calls that sin. If a man and a man sleep together, it is sin. If a woman and a woman sleep together, it is sin. If you're married and you sleep with anybody else outside of your spouse, as defined by God's definition of marriage, it is sin. And let me take it a step further. That sure, we might be here today and, and, and you might be here today and you might be thinking, well, I've, I've, ne I've never done anything outside of marriage between my husband or between my wife. Well, Jesus said that if you even look upon somebody with a sexual thought, you've committed adultery in your heart. So the idea is this, whether we've committed the actual act or we've thought of it in our mind or we've watched some image or viewed some video on the internet or TV, we are under the condemnation and judgment of God. We all are. 
And then it says, whoremongers or these type of male prostitutes and adulterers, these, it's in the masculine form here, referencing men who are cheating on their wives. But it, these, these, these are both in masculine terms, but it applies to women too. So whether you're a man today or a woman and you're unfaithful to your spouse, the Bible says God will bring judgment upon you. Now this word for God is theos. It means he is the supreme God of gods. That This is no pagan God of Rome or Greek that we're speaking of. This is the true God of gods, the true God that was created the world and created this idea of marriage. And if we abuse marriage and abuse sex, the Bible says it is sin. So God will judge those who practice sinful adultery, sexual immorality, and those who do not affirm his holy matrimony. But here's, here's where the grace comes in. At some point, whether mentally, verbally, or physically, we have messed up, all of us here. Every one of us are guilty. And the Bible says that when Jesus was there in John chapter eight, there was a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus extends his gracious forgiveness to that woman. And today, my friend, if you've never experienced the life-changing power of God's forgiveness, you can do that right now. God can, he can pull back his condemnation from you and give you his salvation and forgiveness today. Honor marriage biblically. Display love continually. By the way, the greatest testimony in the world is a family that loves each other. A husband and wife that is portraying the image of Christ's love for the church. But now, may I draw your attention to verses five and six. In five and six, we see the third basic instruction for the Christian life. We've seen so far, it's, it's a call to display love and to honor marriage, but now we're gonna see how it's a call to be content. He says in verse number five and verse number six, he's bringing in this idea of our patterns of lives, our lifestyles should not be with covetousness. And, and the idea here is practice contentment daily. That's the third thought. Practice contentment daily is what we are called to do. Would you say contentment with me? Contentment. God is calling you, God is calling me to be content with the daily lots that we have. Some things are out of our control. Some things are part of our own doing. But nonetheless, the context of our lives, we need to learn to be content. Now, the idea here is that it is very possible, the background here, verse number five, that these Jewish believers who are now believing in the true saving faith of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, at one time, they might have had money, but as a result of their faith in Christ, they have experienced persecution, they might have lost their job, and now they, are, they don't have that steady income coming in. So maybe, maybe they're broke, maybe they don't have what they used to have. And so the writer is urging them, to be content with what you have. I do find it interesting here, this word covetousness. It does come from the idea of greed, a lust for greed and a lust for more money to acquire. The same word is used in Timothy when Paul is highlighting the qualifications of a pastor. Exact same Greek word here. 
And so here the idea is that if there's anybody who should not be living after greed and continually to be thinking that the grass is always greener on the other side is a pastor. He uses that same word to say, hey, the same applies to every person who calls himself a Christian. So as I read about this, I think about how this, this thought, contentment rejects man's covetousness. We've got to lose this idea that, that I need uh, this and I need that. I mean, listen, I mean, we, we might have storage units that we haven't walked into in five years. In five years, we haven't wore shoes that we have in our closets in three years. I mean, we all have clothes that are somewhere stuffed away in some tote or, or some dresser that we probably haven't wore in years and somebody who could use them could actually wear them. The idea is that, that those who tend to practice covetousness are the ones who are, in a sense, indulging in more and more and more. You know, if you talk to somebody who has a net worth of hundreds of millions of dollars and you ask them, at one point, are you gonna be satisfied with the amount that you have? They'll probably say, well, if I could just get another hundred million. If you're driving a nice, fast sports car, you might, somebody might ask you, well, at one point you're gonna be satisfied on that nice sports car. Well, I might be satisfied. It has a, a little extra uh, a torque to that engine. You know, we can keep going on and on. I mean, you know, how many suits do we have to have? How many dress shirts do we have to have? How many dresses do we have to have? The idea here is that, that when we practice covetousness, money can never satisfy us, nor the materials that we have in our home. He goes on to say, to be content with such things that you have. May God help us to do that. I know it's hard. When we see this American culture flaunting all this idea of you gotta have this, you gotta have it better. You need a better iPhone. You need a better Android. You need a better car. You need a better house. You need a a better Yeti mug. You need a, a better iPad. You need better this and better that. We might could use new cushions, I get it. We probably could. But, but the reality is, is there are people in the world today who don't even have a place to gather and so they have to stand outside underneath the tree. The verse goes on to quote either Deuteronomy 31 or Joshua chapter one or both of them. Contentment not only rejects man's covetousness, but contentment accepts God's promise. He says this, be content with the things you have because remember, all you need is God. When you get to the place that all you're in need of is your relationship with Jesus Christ, you know, you could be Solomon and sleep with with thousands of women. There's thousands of men. You could, and they will never satisfy. When you you have a high-paying job, that, that salary increase may not ever satisfy your craving for more money. The idea here is that when we get to a place that when we are totally content in our relationship with God, knowing that he will never abandon us, he will never leave us and never desert us, then we understand that this world has nothing to tempt us with. Did you know that the word here in the Bible for forsake and to leave, it gives the idea of a dear John letter. You know what a Dear John letter is? It's, it's, it's really a letter that was in the context of a guy going off into the military and the one he was 
promised to Mary writes him a letter saying, sorry, but no thank you. That's what it's like. That's desertion. God will never desert you. Whether you're in the Sahara Desert or whatever it is, God will never do it. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then I love this. After we receive this promise and we've accepted and we've rejected and repulsed man's way of, of wanting more and thirsting after more, we get this holy boldness that contentment brings. And so he says all of this stuff to lay into this that so that we may boldly say, this means say it with great confidence that God or the Lord is our helper. And we will not fear what man can do to us. Contentment attracts holy boldness. This, by the way, is a direct quotation from Psalm 118, where the psalmist is in the context saying that it's better to trust in the Lord and put confidence in man. And he's saying all that because he's literally saying that, hey, God is our helper. And why do we need to fear what man can do when God is on our side? You see, the Christian life is, is, is actually rather simple. It's just sometimes it's hard to do. I mean, Sometimes it's hard to practice contentment daily. I'm guilty of it. Sometimes it's hard to honor marriage biblically when everybody's pulling you this way and that way and trying to back you into a corner to make you sound like a crazy religious zealot. And sometimes it's hard to love those who don't love you. But you know, the Bible has been described as the basic instructions before leaving earth. And they are. They tell us the way to God. And the way to get to God is through his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. But the Bible is also the, basics, the basic instructions for life while you're on this earth too. And it is in this passage we see this idea that the Christian life is a call to display love, honor marriage, and be content. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.